from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Matt Bush. Our listeners might be expecting an episode about retirees in our region of Western North Carolina, as we have been promoting that over the last month. Well, that is still coming, but it won't be until next month. Thank you to everyone who submitted stories as we received so many. We're trying to figure out what to do with all of them. It's just one of many production hiccups, but those will be smoothed out, and you'll hear that episode of The Porch in February. In this episode for the first month of 2022, we'll be talking politics, history, and reflection. We spent time doing that on the show before, but to be honest, it never feels like it's enough. Plus, we had to get a show together pretty quickly to fill in for the other one. So a big thanks today to both of our guests for their speedy availability, but even more so for their thoughtfulness about the topics we'll tackle. Later, Smoky Mountain News politics editor and BPR contributor Corey Valancourt joins us. But first, I speak with a fellow podcaster. Before he took up that mantle, Bob Orr had plenty of other jobs, including serving as a justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court for 10 years. And that's where we begin our conversation today before we move on to his podcast, which is called The Battle for NC-14. The state Supreme Court really seems to hold all the power in this particular case. Uh, I think everyone's waiting for what's going to happen there uh, with the redistricting lawsuit that is before them now, a ruling coming sometime next month. Um, What's it like to be on the court when something like this is before you? And obviously... The Supreme Courts, U.S., state, all that kind of set up in a way where you, you know, they want the justices really isolated from any sort of political pressure. Um, But what's it like to be ready to rule on a case like this when you're sitting there and, you know, on the court? What's it like? Well, I I can give you firsthand experience because in 2002, when I was on the Supreme Court, the redistricting litigation uh, came to us in uh, a hurry. I mean, and that's one of the first things is normally at the appellate level, you like to be able to have time to percolate, to analyze, to discuss the various issues, to go over the the draft opinion or dissents on um, on the case. But with redistricting, because of the time pressures, I mean, you don't have that luxury. So uh, the first thing, it's a very abnormal situation being on the court because you have to do everything in a hurry. Uh, Secondly, there is enormous political pressure with redistricting. doesn't make any difference whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It is particularly uh, brutal if you happen to be a candidate in that election cycle. And in 2002, uh, I I was up for a re-election and It was a singularly unpleasant experience from a campaign perspective, even though that was actually my fifth campaign running uh, for statewide judicial office. But it was far and away the worst experience that that I had. So uh, at least for Justice Irvin, who is up this election cycle, uh, the, the pressure and the unpleasantness of the situation is doubled by having to run for election. Uh, you know, but but there's something really interesting, and you know, interrupt me if you got questions on on any of this, Matt. But uh, 
what's what's going to be fascinating about this particular redistricting decision is that the trial court unanimously, two uh, Republican Superior Court judges, one Democrat Superior Court judge, uh, found as facts that every single one of the congressional districts had been drawn for the express purpose of creating a partisan political advantage for the Republicans. So from the standpoint of needing evidence, uh, it's there. The court has already found it, and the Supreme Court is bound by those findings of fact. So then the question arises, okay, so if that's all true, where in the Constitution do you find the authority for saying that those facts violate the Constitution? And that's that's going to be a really interesting um, uh, process for the court because there's nothing in the state constitution that mentions gerrymandering or explicitly references redistricting other than the the legislative process of doing it. And, and so uh, the court, in order to strike down the the districts as drawn, or at least some of the districts, is going to have to take a pretty obscure provision in the state constitution, come to the conclusion with a majority of votes on court that, in fact, uh, the free election clause, for example, means that if you have this partisan gerrymandering, it has to be struck down. And finally, if, if you decide that, you really need to give the legislature, the public, some method or vehicle for drawing districts that don't uh, violate the Constitution. And that's that's been the big rub, both at the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, this three-judge panel. They said, you know... I, we, we've been asked to rule on extreme partisan gerrymandering, but how do you know extreme partisan gerrymandering from just good old-fashioned political gerrymandering? And, 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 you know, I mean, there are experts that have come up with these mathematical formulas, but it, it's, it, it's a tough case. And, and I think, you know, the court would actually benefit from having a lot of time to think about it but they don't have it. In many ways, maybe the admission this week that the Republicans in charge of the General Assembly in, in, in power in both chambers are looking at moving the primary back a month might be maybe at least hedging their bets that they might lose this particular lawsuit. But yeah, right. really getting back to what you said about the appellate court ruling that they found it was gerrymandered, but that isn't necessarily illegal. That speaks so much to our politics right now, right? It's this kind of Machiavellian way of saying, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> Unfortunately, simply because something is unfair doesn't make it unconstitutional. Uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court, which is the final arbiter of the state constitution, interpreting it and applying it, um, you know, can't just pull something out of thin air <laughs> and say, well, this is unfair. And so therefore we're going to hold it unconstitutional. You know, you have to have a provision, you have to have some explanation, uh, you have to have some rationale for how you came up with that.
And, and last question on this. Again, you were there for one in 2002. Roles were a bit flipped at the time. You, at the time, were Republican on the Supreme Court. Democrats were in control of the General Assembly. How much pressure is there from the General Assembly, since that is who's bringing the law or who's defending the lawsuit? How much pressure do Supreme Court justices feel from the General Assembly, those in charge of it, about this right now? Is that real or is that just imagined or is that just something maybe we see too much into as political uh, observers? Now, unfortunately, it is real. And uh, again, as you said, Matt, the 2002 redistricting litigation had a Democrat-controlled General Assembly and five Republicans on the elected Republicans on the Supreme Court. But I mean, there were there were talks of impeachment. There were talks of dramatically cutting the budget to the court. I mean, the the court, for better or worse. Uh, uh, the whole judicial system has to go to the General Assembly uh, for appropriations for its funding. And I mean, there was uh, there was a huge amount of, of pressure uh, on on the court. And I, I think candidly, it, it had a long it's had a long lasting effect and impact. I, I think the court has become more and more reluctant to have to wade into these battles in which you've got to, you know, slap the General Assembly on the hand, no matter who's in control, and say you're violating the Constitution. There's just this general reluctance to do it now. Well, it's very interesting. So 20 years later, we're facing pretty much the same thing you faced when you were on the Supreme Court. So 20 years later, we're going through this here in North Carolina again. I'd say you might agree gerrymandering is about as North Carolina, North Carolinian as <laughs> tear wine and, and vinegar-based barbecue sauce. Um so why did you want to get into podcasting, I guess, as this was coming up this year? And why did you, what about it, I guess, really uh, intrigued you that you wanted to start going this route, I guess, really to talk about politics and to bring some people into it, maybe that, um, you know, either were you know, or bring people into it that were listening uh, differently this time, or maybe that you're trying to reach differently this time? Yeah, it's uh, a little known fact. I was actually a radio TV motion picture major at UNC way back in the day with the aspirations of of being a sportscaster. Uh, somehow my career took a little turn uh, along a different path. Uh, but, I, you know, back in those days, it was reel-to-reel tape and 16-millimeter film. Uh, but I did have experience, you know, as a young you know, twenty-something uh, in the in the media field, and I've ar- always been interested in politics, of course, particularly the politics of Western North Carolina. Uh, having grown up in Hendersonville, having practiced law in Asheville, having kept my voting residence over in Yancey County, a- as you know, twenty twenty-one sort of got kicked off. Uh, I was thinking, okay, I'm 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 old. I'm going to retire from the practice of law here, um, and I I need something interesting and perhaps uh, beneficial to the public to be engaged in. And podcasts seem to be sort of the rage, so uh, I figured, well, okay, you know, I I can figure this out. Even though technology in the digital age, uh, you know, has has left me behind <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Uh, I thought, okay, I can figure this out. It looked going into 2021 uh, that, you know, Madison Cawthorn would would most likely be the the uh, 
uh, nominee of the Republican Party. And, you know, as I got into it in the summer of 21, even though there were a number of Democrats who had jumped in, the favorite, based at least on fundraising and name recognition, was Jasmine Beach Ferrara, the Buncombe County Commissioner. And so the election was shaping up potentially as this huge cultural war clash if if uh, Jasmine was the Democrat nominee and Cawthorn was the Republican nominee. And there was a lot of national attention already on Cawthorn for a variety of reasons that we know about. And so I thought, well, this this could be really interesting. And, and the other people in the race, uh, both on the Republican side and the Democrat side, all had really interesting stories, interesting backgrounds. And I know from my political experience, it's really hard to get the mainstream media to pay much attention to your campaign. You know, they, I mean, the news sources, the press, have faced budget cuts and, and all sorts of pressures that limit their ability to to cover, say, the Republican primary, the Democrat primary, and candidates that aren't as well known. So I thought, okay, that would be that would be beneficial to those individuals to give them a, a, another platform to gain uh, attention and interest in in their candidacy. And I also thought. Uh, you know, wishful thinking that I would have time to to do a, a more sophisticated production that would talk about Western North Carolina history, about uh, the unique places uh, and locations across the district what, that that make it such a fascinating congressional uh, district. And so, uh, all of those things sort of played into deciding. Okay, we'll. Let's, let's jump in and, and do this podcast. So you're a native. What about the mountains finds what you're a native? What about the mountains do you find so interesting politically? I think a lot of people look at our geography and they love the, the physical uh, assets that our region has. But what is it politically about the mountains? Because it is very different. And I think everybody in this area of North Carolina does kind of feel cut off from the rest of North Carolina. <laughs> what about the mountains, I guess, is really interesting politically to you? Well, probably the, the single most uh, interesting aspect to me is the history going back to the Civil War. Uh, my great-grandfather, Robert Franklin Orr, was um, just a farmer over in Henderson County as the Civil War began, and he ultimately refused to fight for the Confederacy and joined 80 other men from the area, went over the mountains into East Tennessee and joined the Union Army. So when he came back after the Civil War, he was a Lincoln Republican. And if you look at the history of the district, certainly going uh, from you know the late 1860s forward, everything was driven by which side of the Civil War did your family uh, uh, fight on or support? And I, I tell the story I had an uh, English teacher in the ninth grade at Hendersonville High School, he got mad at me one day and said, Bob Orr, you're a scalawag just like the rest of your family. And of course, the scalawag was the Southerner who had supported the Union. <laughs> she knew which kids in the in the class had, were from Republican families. She was a strong Democrat. And so uh, there was a Republican funeral home. There was a Democrat funeral home. I mean, so the whole political dynamics well into the 20th century 
radiated this historical divide, uh, which I've always found fascinating, both from a historical and a political and personal uh, basis. And then when I moved to Asheville in 75 to practice law, I, uh, my, my first engagement actually was with historic preservation. I was first president of the Preservation Society, but uh, I sort of matriculated over into politics and ended up as the district administrative assistant for uh, a young guy named Bill Hendon, who was elected to Congress as a Republican in 1980. And so, uh, you know, I spent the next two years working with Billy in, in, in the congressional district. And so, I mean, they're fascinating people. They're fascinating stories relating to the politics uh, going literally all the way back to post-Civil War. And uh, so I just thought, well, I mean, there are all sorts of fun stories and fun people uh, to talk about. I mean, you know, the big, the big stories, voter fraud. Well, let's talk about Zeno Ponder and the Ponder Gang in Madison County. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of, lot of time in the podcast to do that yet, but that, that's certainly my aspiration. continue our conversation with Bob Moore in just a moment here on The Porch on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back to The Porch from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush. We continue our talk with Bob Orr, former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, about his new podcast, The Battle for NC-14, and his desire to talk about history in it. You know, a lot of what we've done here in our work uh, at Blue Ridge Public Radio in our news and in our podcasts, all three of them in some ways, but certainly two of them, we talk a lot about how Reconstruction is this era of history that was not really taught all that much. It's a bit forgotten, not a bit forgotten, very forgotten. Right. But we're really living it right now, it feels like, and we're certainly living from the impacts and the legacy of what happened during Reconstruction. I think you just brought up a couple good points about that. Um, what can you say about that? I mean, w- say someone didn't know much about Reconstruction, they approached you, what would you begin to tell them? What are the things people need to start learning about Reconstruction so that we can understand 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I grew up in an era of the segregated South. I was in the, the last segregated uh, high school class at Hendersonville High School. And I, I think people who aren't of my age and and uh, and who grew up in the South don't understand how uh, how completely inundated we were with sort of the lost cause in the Confederacy. Uh, you know, we they played Dixie at uh, the football games. They waved the Confederate flag. Nobody really had been taught, I think, adequately about what went on, you know, the the whole slavery issue and then what transpired during Reconstruction. There was this perception, well, we didn't talk much about it. All these carpetbaggers and outsiders came down to the South and and did terrible things to our ancestors, stole their horses, whatever. Um, Yeah, I mean, to really understand Reconstruction, uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant has a very significant section near the end of the book 
about Reconstruction, which candidly, I'd never learned, uh, you know, through high school, college, law school. Uh, I mean, there were so many things that transpired, not just in Reconstruction, but but from the white supremacy campaign of 1900. Charles B. Acock was the father of education, the, the governor. <laughs> Only 10, 15 years ago did we start finding out that, in fact, Acock had been one of the the leaders of the white supremacy campaign in 1900 that uh, that resulted in the, the overthrow of uh, uh, Wilmington government, local government, which had a number of African-Americans in elective office. I mean, so all of these things well, we just never learned about. And and I, I think, you know, all of the the controversy over critical race theory I guess my perspective is, well, you know, we need to know history. We need to have an accurate account of what happened um, so that we can learn and benefit from mistakes that were made in the past. But, um, you know, there's, it's just one more area of controversy, but, but um, yeah, we, we received a one-sided education coming through um you know, local public schools and e even college, I think, you know, there was very, very little. Um, I, I know I had my 50th reunion a couple of years ago, UNC, and I think out of a class of 2000, we maybe had 40 African-Americans. Uh, you know, I knew one, one individual that, you know, we ran track our freshman year together, but it, it was a very different world, a very different um, environment in those days. And in the mountains, a big figure, certainly in Reconstruction, was Zebulon Vance, became a big figure across North Carolina. He's honored even in the Capitol in D.C. So uh, the mountains certainly had a role in Reconstruction, too. You're talking about Charles Acock and Wilmington, but, you know, the mountains certainly had a big role in, in, in Reconstruction, too. And, then you know, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fascinating stuff just hearing you talk I, I, about it. I have to throw this in. Since you brought up Zebulon Vance, uh, and perhaps this is a topic for a different different interview, but I'm part of the legal team that has brought this challenge um, against Madison Cawthorn uh, based upon the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, Section 3. And uh, to my knowledge, the last person uh, impacted by that particular provision of the Constitution was, in fact, Zeb Vance, who had been selected by the legislature to be United States Senator, but when when he got to Washington, he was challenged that he was disqualified under the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3, uh, which is the basis for the Cawthorn challenge, and um, was not seated at that time. It took a later um, uh, act of Congress to uh, to allow him to be seated later on. The past is never dead in the South. It isn't <laughs> even past him anyways, right? Um, so back to the podcast, you've been talking to a lot of the candidates um, for what is now NC14. Madison Cawthorn, as of right now, is running in the 13th district. So of the 14th district candidates you've been talking to, and there are several, just like there were two years ago, on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, what are you learning? What do, what do you find some common themes? I think a lot of people love to hear about bipartisanship, and it's that's well and good. But you know, I think also when you talk to people more, there's a lot of common 
issues, there's a lot of common statements, a lot of common feelings that actually come up between both parties. And I think as you're talking to the candidates, have you found some of those as you've been talking to them? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, particularly among the individuals running in the Democrat primary, I, I mean, the issues that they focus on broadband and and the like. I mean, there's there's a good deal of similarity uh, to those issues. I think each of the candidates, and I've at least at this point interviewed all of the uh, the candidates in the Democrat primary, all are are very well intentioned and committed, with each sort of emphasizing his or her unique qualifications. Um, uh, to the to the primary voters and ultimately whoever wins to the, the, the general. Um, it, one thing that's interesting to me is I think other than Jasmine Beach Ferrara, none of the others have really been involved in Democrat Party politics. Uh, and that may be a product of a declining party interest. But uh, I think like a couple of them maybe have been registered unaffiliated up until a couple of years ago. Uh, and and so it's it's interesting to me from a political standpoint that that, you know, it's less about being a loyal Democrat, which is sort of the way it was when I was coming along uh, and more on individual issues and individual characteristics and qualities uh, that they're they're trying to sell, but um, it, I, I'm looking forward to getting the the last quarter's fundraising to see if any particular candidate is starting to demonstrate some proven fundraising ability. Uh, which I, and I think the extended primary makes it a little tougher. I mean, he gives them a little more time, but between Omicron you know, continuing to limit personal appearances and not knowing who's going to come out of the primary. Uh, it, it's hard to raise money uh, for these individuals. On the Republican side, of course, <laughs> and, you can, and I know you appreciate this, Matt, you know, we set up a website, we set up, you know, a logo, the battle for NC-11. Well, you know, first thing we know, the General Assembly redraws the districts, which wasn't a surprise. We knew that would happen. But they renumber the district. So, so now it's NC-14. Uh, my worry is if they if the court orders them to redraw them, they may make it District 12. Who knows? I mean, it's completely... <laughs> the hashtags get so yeah, messed I up. Know. They're already messed up. And you're right, it could happen again. <laughs> I know. My wife has done the... Uh, and done all the website and graphic design work for me. I think she will, you know, retire perhaps if, if we have a number change. And then, you know, not too long after they changed the the district's number, Cawthorn pulls this uh, <laughs> stunning revelation that he's not going to run in the 14th. He's going to jump ship and run in the 13th, uh, you know, which is east of, the, the district. And so all of my premises sort of going into the podcast, you know, got blown up within the first five or six weeks. And, you know, we were sort of scrambling to reconfigure that. And of course, then a bunch of new Republicans got in the race. Uh, so there are probably three or four that I've, I have not yet interviewed who have announced that uh, they're running for the Republican nomination. 
Uh, and since we're, you know, not really going to find out what the final district configurations are until, you know, maybe April, and then there's another filing period. Um, I mean, it's not inconceivable that Cawthorn could jump to another district, could jump back to the fourth. Other people could get in. Um, and, you know, so from a podcaster's perspective, it's been a nightmare. And I can only imagine for the poor candidates and their supporters you know, who are trying to uh, trying to run some semblance of an organized campaign. Uh, all of this uncertainty has been really difficult for them. Well, that's terrific. My last question is: What have you ta- what are you what have you taken away from this so far as you're doing this? And again, so much has changed. So much more could change in a month or two, uh, as well. But how much of how how much what have you taken away uh, during your time doing this podcast about the district, the region, the mountains, and the people that are in it, and the people that want to run for office to represent them? Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me, and this includes Democrat and Republican candidates. Uh, there is a great sincerity of wanting to serve. I I have not found, you know, setting Mr. Cawthorn aside here, you know, some great ego trip that any of these individuals uh, are are embarking on. I mean, they all recognize it's a, it's a difficult uh, challenge running for Congress. It's a huge geographical district. Money is hard to come by until the broader donor base thinks you're going to be the likely candidate or the likely winner. And, and, and they have persevered. That's Bob Orr, former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, who's dabbling in podcasting now with The Battle for NC-14, which you can find on Apple or Google Podcasts, just like you can The Porch and BPR's other two podcasts, The Waters and Harvey Show, and Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. get to waiting for the North Carolina Supreme Court to essentially decide the fate of the 2022 election? Corey Valancourt is one of those in the know, the politics editor for Smoky Mountain News and BPR contributor. Join me to discuss. The way we got here is a little complicated, but uh, we've been trying to follow along. So Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution uh, calls for a census every 10 years. We've been doing this for more than 200 years. We count up all the people in the country and in every state, and then we redraw our maps based on population shifts. Obviously, some states lose population, other states gain population. North Carolina was one of those that gained population. So uh, around springtime of last year, we started talking about redrawing these congressional and legislative maps. And the General Assembly, that is their role. Uh, The governor does not have a say in this. He can't veto the maps. And so uh, the Republican-dominated General Assembly then embarked on a months-long tour. I think there were 15 or so public hearings. Uh, A couple hundred people attended each one of them, including the one held out here at Cullowee. Everybody said on both sides of the aisle, uh, we don't want gerrymandering. Republicans said, We don't want gerrymandering. Democrats said, we don't want gerrymandering. So the General Assembly gerrymandered these maps. 
So these new maps are projected to give Republicans a 10-4 advantage in the congressional districts. That means that our congressional delegation that goes to Washington would have 10 Republicans and four Democrats in a state that uh, gave President Trump a victory in 2020 by just 1.6 points. So I think you can understand why people are uh, somewhat outraged at these maps. Uh, The General Assembly approved the maps. I believe it was in October or November, but lawsuits were filed uh, before the maps were even approved. And so that lawsuit alleging partisan gerrymander went to a three-judge panel in the Wake County Superior Court. There are two Republicans and one Democrat on that court. Their ruling uh, that came out last week was unanimous, and it was very interesting because they literally said, These maps are a pro-Republican partisan gerrymander. However, they went on to say that partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina is not illegal. So obviously an appeal was filed. That appeal, as we speak, is sitting somewhere in the North Carolina Supreme Court. Meanwhile, candidate filings were halted uh, as they started to consider these court cases because candidates can't rightly file for office if they don't know what their districts are going to be. So that was what you were alluding to earlier. Uh, All of the, I guess, rush of filings for these congressional and state legislative seats uh, was put on pause. And that's where we're still sitting today. We're awaiting that Supreme Court ruling and trying to determine whether or not the maps presented by the General Assembly will hold for the November election, or if they're going to have to be redrawn. And we just talked to Bob Orr, a former state Supreme Court justice on the show, about the ruling from the appellate court. And just it's very, which you which you mentioned, it really kind of clearly um, bring, brings into clear relief the pol- political situation, not just in North Carolina, but I think across the country. They ruled that, yes, the maps were gerrymandered, but was it illegal? And according to the appellate court, it was not illegal. So that really... Clearly distills our politics here right now, right? Uh, It really does. And, you know, North Carolina is not the only state going through this. In fact, I think Illinois is almost the exact opposite of North Carolina. Illinois lost a seat due to population uh, shifts, and so they're forced to redraw maps and lose a congressional district. And in that state, it's Democrats who are in charge of that process, and the Democrats are gerrymandering those districts in Illinois. And so this is not exclusive to North Carolina or to Republicans. Uh, or to even 2020. This has been going on for as long as we've been redrawing maps. And um, if you know anything about North Carolina politics, our courts often have the final say in those matters. And we have experience with this in North Carolina. You hinted at that, but really the entire last decade, it felt like the politics of North Carolina over gerrymandering were spent in the courts. So uh, we are somewhat used to this, unfortunately. So uh, we're waiting for that ruling. It comes at the end of February. Right now, though, this week, we hear that the General Assembly, the Republicans in charge of the General Assembly that hold power, are looking at moving the primary to June. Um, That could be a hint at what they think may happen with the Supreme Court ruling, but it also has a lot of other impacts. So take us through some of those. Yeah. So originally the primary was scheduled for March 8th. Uh, When the original court case was filed, they moved that to May 17th. And then just uh, Wednesday, just a few days ago, uh, January 19th, the General Assembly did vote to move that primary once again from May 17th to June 7th. Now, the reason that uh, people are speculating is they they feel that the Supreme Court is going to strike down these maps, and uh, if there's not enough time, 
the Supreme Court would just redraw the maps themselves. Now, that's a problem for General Assembly Republicans because the Supreme Court has a 4-3 Democratic majority. So you can imagine what kind of maps they might try to draw. So it's speculated that some of these districts are going to be uh, struck down and that the General Assembly wants to have a crack at redrawing those maps. Um, But there are practical implications to moving this primary once again even further. It's a much longer primary season than normal. Uh, What is that going to do in our U.S. Senate race? It seems like Democrats have kind of coalesced around one candidate, and Republicans are still fighting it out. You've got uh, former Congressman Mark Walker, you've got current Congressman Ted Budd, and then you've got former Governor Pat McCrory. So these guys are going to have to spend more money beating each other up through June to determine who goes to the general election, while Democrats just basically kind of sit back and watch them do that, uh, probably with a big smile on their face. The other thing that I think is interesting is that by moving this to June, students at universities won't likely be at those universities. And so uh, the ones that do vote here that have registered in North Carolina, maybe they go home to Atlanta or they go home to uh, the coast to Wilmington. They might not be as excited to vote in these races. They may not request an absentee ballot. Uh, Of course, most universities, um, the students there are liberal. And so this could hurt Democrats in that way. So and we have seen the college vote have some impact. Uh, in 2018, Democrats picked up two very crucial statehouse uh, seats that were in districts that contain uh, both Appalachian State and Western Carolina University. Of course, that's a general election and that won't get moved. So as we await these rulings, um, chaos has already really happened here because of the delay, which was kind of expected, then the appeal, which was completely expected over these lawsuits. Um, but we have people chiefly Madison Cawthorn, a congressman currently for Western North Carolina, looking to run in another district uh, next year. If these maps are thrown out, we're going to have to have districts redrawn. That could totally change who runs where. Um, so, yeah, you've been tracking this. What happens? Or what do you think is going to happen? Or, or I don't know, what, what, you know, what, what, again, how much more chaos are we going to see? Well, we do have chaos, but we do not yet have maximum chaos. I think uh, we're all kind of looking to see if that's going to happen. In my mind, maximum chaos means they completely redraw these maps. Madison Cawthorn has to redo his political calculus, and it could end up with him coming back to the district that elected him. Uh, We call it NC-11, but they've proposed calling it NC-14. We don't know if that's going to stick or not, but uh, that would certainly put him in a pickle because— Certainly, he weighed the pros and cons of his decision to leave the district that elected him. Certainly, he knew there would be some blowback. Well, in my reporting around here, I've seen some pretty diehard Republicans uh, with some not-so-nice things to say about Cawthorn, um, that he's abandoned the district and he's left them, and he promised to go to Washington to fight for them, and now he's abandoning them. I've heard those exact words from Republicans. So if he comes back to this district... Uh, I keep using the analogy of cheating on one significant other. You know, you have to come back, crawl back into the into the house and say, baby, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And if I did mean it, it didn't mean what you thought it meant. And if it did mean what you thought it meant, it's not what I wanted to happen. And so there's a lot of mental gymnastics that would have to go into that. And I think uh, Representative Cawthorn probably has his fingers crossed that things don't change too much. And he can still carry out his plan to run in that uh, brand new 13th congressional district that the, the General Assembly drew.
We'll have more in just a moment on the porch here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We have to take a short break first, and we'll be back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Porch from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush. We continue our talk with Corey Valancourt, politics editor for the Smoky Mountain News, about the 2022 election, and we pick back up with some races that won't be affected by gerrymandering before tackling the growing schism in the Republican Party, which is already showing up in North Carolina. So much more is on the ballot this year in North Carolina. Some really, really critical and crucial local races. City of Asheville is going to elect mayor and, um, again, city council seats. I think a lot of people are going to be watching that. Buncombe County as well, depending on what the, the lines are drawn in Buncombe County. The commissioners are, you know, have to, the commissioner districts follow the state line districts and they have to wait until that's all decided. Uh, the state house district uh, lines in Buncombe County. So they have to wait for the court ruling to come down to see how that shakes out. There are some other things that you're going to be looking at, too, some races that are really, really crucial. I think they've come into, again, some more clear relief in the past few years about how particularly important these positions are, and that is sheriff, and counties will be electing sheriffs. Tell us about what you're looking at as uh, as we get ready, once candidate filing uh, can start and we can get ready for a primary date. What are you looking at in sheriff's races across Western North Carolina? People don't generally think of sheriffs as an elected position until they show up at the ballot box and see a name on there. You know, we think it's law enforcement, but it is a countywide elected position in all 100 counties in North Carolina. Uh, these sheriffs, in addition to maintaining the detention centers and things like that, they do have a pretty substantial political role. We saw that a couple of years back when the Second Amendment sanctuary movement started uh, coming out of Virginia and into North Carolina. What that was all about was citizens were approaching their county commissioners and saying, we want you to pass a resolution that says that we will not enforce laws that we don't believe are constitutional. And they're talking strictly about gun control measures. Now, let's just never mind the fact that no one in any county is qualified or um, entitled to determine the constitutionality of a law that has a legal process, and that's how that's resolved. But nonetheless, folks were asking sheriffs, and some of them agreed, to say, we will not enforce any gun control laws. Now, our sheriff here in Haywood County said basically what I just told you, which is, it's not my decision as to whether these laws are constitutional or not. That's a matter for the courts. I have to enforce the laws that are on the books, and if gun control regulations are passed, like it or not, I will enforce them. Uh, other sheriffs did not share that view. So that's one way that the politicization of law enforcement affects everyday citizens. Uh, the other way is uh, Madison Cawthorn actually benefited from this tremendously during his run. He got endorsements from local sheriffs. These people are community fixtures. They're involved in local issues. They go to Raleigh and advocate for policies like uh, the STOP Act for opioids and all sorts of um, you know other issues in their communities. And so they are part politician, part law enforcement, and they carry a lot of weight. Uh, not only within their department, but within their community. And so when you find out your sheriff has endorsed a particular candidate, uh, there's a good chance that you will consider that very heavily. Now, uh, our sheriff here in Haywood County, uh, Greg Christopher, he has announced that he is not running. I think we already have four candidates, two on each side, vying for that seat. Uh, I think, I want to say Jackson County and or Macon County's sheriffs are both retiring or not seeking re-election. I believe Cherokee County, their sheriff is not seeking re-election. 
So not only do you lose all that institutional knowledge and experience in the law enforcement realm, it could significantly change the political landscape. If uh, Republican candidates are going out looking for endorsements from sheriffs, well, some of them might be Democrat this time, and it's probably not in the works for them. So uh, those, as you said, are very important races and also very overlooked races by voters who don't really consider it a political issue. So as we go forward, another thing that came out this month was a poll from the John Locke Foundation with Civitas in North Carolina that looked at Republican uh, preferences for Senate and for president in 2024. But I think one of the things you and I broke down here, and you've been doing some reporting about this and talking to some Republicans about the growing uh, schism that exists between the pro-Trump and the non-Trump parts of the party is, here's the numbers from this. Donald Trump had an 80% favorable rating in this poll, but when asked who they would vote for in 2024, Republicans in this poll only said uh, former President Trump 47%, so under 50% supporting him. Um, There's a lot of other numbers we can go through in here, but that's an interesting uh, number, I think, to find there. And as you've been doing your report, reporting here of recently, how is that poll number essentially without knowing it? How is that poll number showing up in some of the reporting you've been doing? Ever since the 2020 election, my number one question following it was, what is the ongoing influence of Donald Trump? And when I was, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the election, people were 100% behind him still. After the insurrection, that dropped significantly. Uh, Through the summer, I was at a rally in Greensboro where the president um, uh, spoke and actually endorsed Ted Budd for U.S. Senate. Uh, I talked to local Republican leaders, uh, district chairs, county chairs. They still said it was about 90 percent support uh, for Trump from their Republican parties. This poll kind of flies in the face of that. However, it does kind of jive with a conversation I recently had with the lieutenant governor of Georgia, a guy by the name of Jeff Duncan. So Jeff Duncan in September uh, was very visible uh, as campaigning got really heavy in Georgia for president. And as we know, it did turn blue. Joe Biden did win the state. But it was basically the epicenter of the big lie. Uh, We all heard the Trump phone call where he asked the secretary of state to find him 11,780 votes. Mark Meadows, our former congressman here, uh, Trump's chief of staff, was also on that call. Uh, It's yet to be determined if anything illegal transpired during that call, but certainly people were shocked at the pressure tactics. So as that movement progressed, Duncan, lieutenant governor of Georgia, he wrote a book. Uh, It's called GOP 2.0, How the 2020 Election Can Lead to a Better Way Forward for America's Conservative Party. Now, obviously, that book made some waves. Uh, Just a quick rundown on it. Uh, He basically is trying to drag the Republican Party kicking and screaming away from the Trump legacy. And, uh, you know, we can go into detail about what he believes the party should do and how it should proceed. But he did say, you know, certainly this is applicable to the national party. He said Republicans should be spending their time concentrating on many of the big wins that they achieved during the Trump administration. Uh, But his plan to move forward with this, he calls it his pet project, P-E-T. This stands for policy, empathy and tone. So talk about your winnings, talk positively, be empathetic, don't call people losers and, you know, everything that Trump was really known for. And then tone, uh, you know, very similar thing. Be a little bit more, uh, I suppose, um, 
I don't want to say bland, but be a little more straightforward in your remarks. He, yeah, Duncan has said, you know, people have been leaving the Republican Party left and right. They haven't left the principles. They have just left the person. And so uh, getting back to this Civitas poll and Trump's overall um, approval rating, I asked Duncan, I said, right now, uh, what's the percentage of the National Republican Party that still supports Trump? And he said, well, I think it's about 50 percent. So that jives perfectly with the Civitas poll. Uh, if the poll's right and if Duncan's right, uh, we may see the rebirth of what Duncan calls America's conservative party uh, without Donald Trump. And so I asked Duncan specifically, does this apply to North Carolina? You know, this is a fairly similarly situated state. We've got a lot of rural areas, a lot of urban areas. It's very close to 50 50. Uh, it did not vote for pre uh, for President Biden in 2020. However, uh, it was certainly close. And so I think we've got a little piece of tape here where Duncan kind of explains how this uh, type of thinking is coming to a state near you, including North Carolina. What we're being used as in Georgia is a testing ground, a proving ground, a pawn uh, by, by, by some that want to just try to prove or disprove their political theories. And so this has become... Uh, their, their, their laboratory. Uh, but I can assure the rest of the country that this nonsense and chaos uh, is coming to a state near them if we don't stop this, this trajectory towards uh, chaos. Now, certainly the president's influence is going to be felt in this GOP Senate primary. He endorsed Ted Budd. Um, Mark Walker was endorsed by Madison Cawthorn. And then there's former Governor Pat McCrory, the only one of the three who has won a statewide race and has the most uh, voter name recognition, certainly. Um, so we'll see it come out in that. You also interviewed Congressman Cawthorn as the counterpoint to uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan's from Georgia, his comments. What did Congressman Cawthorn say to you? Well, certainly it's predictable. Uh, he does not agree with Lieutenant Governor Duncan. Um, but he put forth something that's really interesting that I had not heard before, and I want to kind of share that with you. Um, he said, a lot of people call it the America First agenda, and I credit Donald Trump with starting that movement, but now it's being decentralized. Now there's really no leader of it. It's the people who are leading. I genuinely believe that the America First movement is all about putting Americans first. So that is an interesting concept because in a party uh, that is such a cult of personality based around Trump, uh, Democrats seem to have a big target on uh, former President Trump. And if he's not in the picture, they may think, OK, fine, we're, we're home free, we're safe. Uh, however, if you want to believe what uh, Cawthorn believes, he said he was familiar with uh, the book but hadn't read it, that getting rid of Donald Trump is not going to end the movement that he created. And so um, I think he used the words, cut the head off the snake. Um, it's not going to kill the snake. In fact, all the snakes are going to be reborn as lions or something like that. So um, that really shoots some holes in those folks who hope to be able to uh, rid the party of Trump and, and um, regain a, a more uh, sober track for the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to see how that ends up playing out. Absolutely. But like so much, we are beholden right now to a state Supreme Court ruling that's going to tell us when the vote's going to take place and when people can start filing and all those sorts of things. We do want to mention this also. You were in D.C. a year ago. Um, 
when President Biden was inaugurated just a few weeks after the insurrection. You interviewed Congressman Cawthorn while he was there. And I think in some of your previous reporting, we've shown how much uh, his words in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection have uh, changed uh, since then into as we are now in 2022. But um, you were there a year ago. What do you remember and what do you reflect on a year later of what you saw there? Uh, in in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 2021. I've spent lots of time in Washington in my life, and I know you have as well coming from the uh, the station in D.C. And still the thing that sticks with me the most is how surreal it was to see that town fenced up, shut down. Of course, COVID was in full swing and vaccines were not yet widely available at the time. And so between COVID the insurrection, the fencing around the National Mall. Um, you know, D.C. is a fun town. It's a town that likes to party. It, it works hard. It plays hard. None of that was happening when I was there. Um, my photographer and I, Jeffrey Delanoy, walking the streets, trying to get around. Uh, certain um, subway stations were closed. That's what really still sticks with me. Um, can I tell the body armor story? Do you want to hear the body armor story? <clears throat> So I've told this story to a few friends, but I don't think I've ever um, put it into um, uh, print or or broadcast media. But uh, it was actually January 20th, and we had worked all day long and finally sat down about 10 p.m. at a restaurant to have dinner and have a beer. And I look at my cell phone, and I've got a call from an Arlington, Virginia phone number, and that's where we were staying. We were at the Ritz-Carlton in Arlington, uh, Pentagon City. And I said, well, gosh, why is someone from Virginia calling me? And so I I missed the call, I checked the voicemail, and it was an Arlington County detective who was requesting that I call him back immediately. And so I went outside and I did that. And, uh, you know, just talking about how surreal the situation was, prior to going to Washington, I had to watch and attend several different webinars, training sessions. One of them uh, by the DART School of Journalism at Columbia was called Covering Riots and Civil Unrest. So we were certainly prepared after what we saw at the insurrection. We had no idea if it was going to be violent or not. And so uh, both my photographer and I, we had body armor and we had brought it with us. So we quickly determined that the town was a ghost town and everything was very quiet there. And so I didn't wear it very much. I think I only wore it on one day. The rest of the time it was sitting in the hotel room. So this detective wanted to know why we had body armor. And, and he said, can I ask you a few questions about that? And I said, okay, let me ask you a question first. Is it illegal to possess this in your county? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, um, you probably know the answers to this because you're a detective, but I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm with my photographer. We, we brought body armor because at the end of this assignment, we just want to be able to go home to our families just like you. And so I really give them credit for checking up on this. But then when I sat down and thought about it, um, and as we've seen details of January 6th emerge since then, uh, apparently before the January 6th insurrection, uh, people were pouring into town and pouring into hotel rooms, bringing big weapons cases and military-style gear. Um, I'm not sure about weapons, but certainly armor and helmets and gas masks. And so hotels started calling local law enforcement, uh, just alerting them to that. Well, local law enforcement stayed on the case after the insurrection through the inauguration just to make sure no other funny business was going to take place, and uh, they just wanted to be sure that we were not going there to cause trouble. So 
he said I was his last call of the night, and he got to go home after talking to me, and he was satisfied with the answers. But again, adding to the surreal situation of a town, a world-class town, the capital of planet Earth, being closed down from COVID, fenced off because of the insurrection, detectives are calling us about body armor. I really thought, God, what reality is this? What timeline is this? Where did we get so off track? You and I are prone to very dark humor at times, but we'll finish it this way. Don't put it away, or at least put it in a place you know where it is. I really hope neither of us have to have these conversations anymore. It's, I was in D.C. a few days before the inauguration last year, and it hurt my heart. Having been there for 10 years, it probably would have hurt my heart even if I hadn't been there for 10 years. So I really hope this is just an anecdote you shared with us that is just something of the era, something of the time, and that that's all it ever ends up being. But we know as we're going into 2022 and who knows what ahead of that for the next few years that this is just an anecdote and it's not a precursor to other things. Yeah, nobody wants this to become a regular occurrence. Uh, when I became a journalist, I certainly never thought I would have to call my publisher and tell him that the Ritz-Carlton housekeepers had found my body armor. It's a rather absurd statement, but it happened. That's Corey Valancourt, politics editor for the Smoky Mountain News and BPR contributor. And that does it for this episode of The Porch. The BPR News team is Helen Chickering, Lily Knepp, Matt Piken, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. Catch all our episodes with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. Next month on The Porch, we'll have our episode about retirees in Western North Carolina. Join us for it and stay safe. <music>